Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18. Jesus coming to this planet was good news of great joy, no doubt about it. And we're walking our way through the book of Philippians. Paul is teaching us how we can apply this good news of great joy in every area of our lives. And today we're looking at joy and stuck points. I, I shared with you this last weekend that uh, we have had eight deaths connected to our church family within the last two weeks. So it's been really quite uh, inundating for many of us and for myself uh, as a pastor of this church. And um, we did Mary's funeral yesterday. It's really great to have her family here this morning. These flowers are from her, her going home party, actually. And we celebrated what a wonderful funeral that was, uh, the words of her family, and uh, just uh, amazingly beautiful what, uh, what I saw represented in, in Mary's life and certainly put on display the glory of God because of her deep satisfaction in Jesus Christ in spite of the suffering that she experienced in her life. And now she is home with the Lord. And so the thing is with what we're talking about here is regardless of what you're going through, even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of grief, there is joy. Our working definition has been a deep, durable delight in the beauty, glory, splendor of who Jesus is and what he's done that ruins you for anything else. That's one of our working definitions. Joy is a buoyancy in our lives based on the pleasures we have in the eternal privileges that Christ has given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection through the cross. So it's pretty amazing when you understand that. Joy, the opposite of joy is not sorrow. You're going to have sorrow. The opposite of joy would be hopelessness and despair. And the Bible says that we grieve, but we do not grieve like the world grieves. The, grieve, the world grieves uh, in a way that is hopeless. We have unbelievable hope in the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, hey, take a look at your notes here. We're going to talk about joy and stuck points. Actually, it's not on your notes, but take a look on the, on the big screen here. Let me share with you from uh, the barbarian way, Erwin McManus, this quote as we kick things off this morning. You cannot meet the creator of the universe and stay the same. If the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely loving comes to dwell within your life, you would expect at least some sort of life change. There's a problem when people talk about meeting God or knowing God and yet remain unchanged by God. If Jesus has come to dwell within you, you are no longer suited for a normal life. I believe that wholeheartedly. Now take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro here. Life change is a natural byproduct of the Christian life. I'm convinced of that. Those who walk in vital union with Jesus Christ will change more and more into Christ's likeness. If you're not changing, then you're either not a Christian or you're not walking or living in vital union with Jesus Christ. So it's kind of as you look at your life, and this is what I found. Everybody look up here just for a minute and you can look back on your notes. The longer I've walked with Christ, I've walked with Christ most of my life off off and on, back and forth, it's been highs and lows, but I'm telling you, it gets sweeter and sweeter each, each and every new year. It is amazing. And I almost feel like I just started off here in the last few years. I just feel like, and you've heard me say this before, I'm born again, I'm born again again. You know, because of understanding, I feel like I just have a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ unlike I've ever experienced before, and it's gone so deep into my heart. 
And it's, it's been such, such a sweet, amazing truth about who Jesus is and Him in my life personally through the work of His Holy Spirit and all that He's accomplished for me. And so it's kind of, it should be natural and normal that if you're walking in this understanding, this vital union with Jesus Christ, there will be life change. It's inevitable. It becomes the byproduct of that. Back to your notes here, to what it says. The gap between what I believe and how I behave, my spirituality and my reality should be narrowing through the years. So what I say I believe, if I really believe what I believe is really real, if I really believe that the God of the galaxies is madly in love with me, has this amazing love for me, it's going to make a difference in how I live out my life. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's going to make all the difference in the world. Now, that's what, that's what we're talking about, and that's what we're talking about as it relates to stuck points. But what if it's not? What if it's not happening? How do I get beyond my stuck points? I was asking my wife this last week, what her stuck points were. I wanted her to tell me what her stuck points were. And, I, and if she couldn't come up with a list, I had a list for her. A real long one. And, but she was very quick to say, oh yeah, yeah, I've, I've got stuck points. And I said, so what are some of your stuck points? I know what they are, but just see if you know what they are, okay? <laughs> and she said, well, I can tell you this, that I would have certainly become so much more than what I am now, accomplished so much more, I would have achieved so much more if it hadn't been for one major stuck point that I have in my life. Ah, you guys already know. <laughs> yeah, it was her. That was me, yeah, it was me. She goes, yep. Yep, you, and we were just kind of joking around, and we were kind of going back and forth with that, and then, I, of course, I said, you are welcome, very much, that I'm your stuck point. But, uh, but we had a lot of fun with that as we were walking through that. She shared with me hers, I certainly, she knows mine. What are yours? What are your stuck points? You have all day, money, I mean, some of you are yelling them out to me. You don't need to yell them out to me right now. That's okay, though. That's, that's very honest of you. Um, but what are your stuck points? What, what really messes with you? And, and, and it could be this morning that maybe your relationship with God is just stale and stagnant. Boy, that would be a major stuck point. Because, uh, and, and certainly I've been there before, but it shouldn't be true about those who are walking in vital union with Jesus Christ. And so that would be a stuck point. I mean, do you see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and you want him more than you want anything else? See, that's normal Christianity. And if not, that's a stuck point for you. Maybe it's a, a hurt. It's a past hurt. You were devastated. You were hurt deeply, and you just can't get beyond that. That every time this person's name is brought up, or you get, you know, it's almost like a terrible sunburn. Anybody that touches you in that particular area of your life, you just pull back. Or maybe it's not a hurt, but it's a habit. And you and your spouse, it's just the same old thing. I mean, you, you, you seem to do well for, for a month or two, and then you go around the mountain again. There it is. There it comes up once again. Same old issue. Or maybe it's just, a, it's just flat out a habit, man. You just can't resist. You can't stop. You can't put down. Or maybe it's just a hang-up. I start thinking of different hang-ups, you know, things that we do that can be irritating to those that are closest to us. By the way, if you need to come up with a list of hang-ups, just ask those that you live with. They will tell you what your stuck points are or what your hang-ups might be. But it's important that as we work through this, you can have, in the midst of 
hang-ups and stuck points, you can have joy, and it's the joy that will help you to get beyond those stuck points. So before we take a look at our text this morning, would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's once again go before the throne of grace. Ask God's blessing upon our time together. What I'd like to do this morning is read, actually pray, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. You'll see why as we work through this. God, thank you so much for being here, meeting with us this morning. And as your word says here, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, God, we are surrounded by, by people that struggle just like us, people within this church building this morning, this performing arts building. God, and we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses through your word, many who have gone before us, who love you and are committed to you. And we, we have a sense that they're, they're cheering us on. And so, God, in the midst of that, may we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God right now ruling and reigning so God, transform us this morning. Help us to get beyond those stuck points. May we find this deep, durable delight in you in the midst of our stuck points so that we can move beyond that for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at your text here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me give you uh, some uh, thoughts on how to get beyond the stuck points. To get beyond my stuck points, I must, here's your first fill in the blank, eliminate pretense. I must eliminate pretense or eliminate game playing or mask wearing. Just going through the motions. He makes that very clear in verse 12. You'll notice there, if you keep your Bibles open, we'll just kind of unpack this. He says, don't obey only when I'm there. Don't obey just because the boss is there, just because the boss is watching you, just because the Apostle Paul is, is there. Yes, he's to be honored and respected, the Apostle. And he says, don't just obey just because I'm there. And, and so he's telling them, just eliminate any kind of pretense. I don't know if you guys know this, but... Uh, Nine out of ten college students who are raised in the church uh, defect from the faith when they hit college. So let me say that again. So nine out of ten kids that are raised in the church when they hit college, they typically defect from church. That's pretty staggering uh, stats. Why is that? 
There's a lot of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that mom and dad aren't there to kind of get them to go to church. See, here's the deal with, that we need to understand as, as parents is that the motivation at some point has got to move from, from extrinsic motivation from mom and dad hovering over their kids to an intrinsic motivation that they want to because they love God. Does that make sense? It's a motivation because, not because mom and dad are watching. And that's what he's saying. Don't just obey God just because I'm watching you. Obey him because you, you love him, because you are a genuine person. You're, you're a person of credibility. You're a person that, uh, that has integrity. And that's true, true integrity. There's a number of verses here. Obviously, the Bible deals with this whole topic of eliminating pretense. Get rid of game-playing, mask-wearing. Matthew 6, verses 2, 5, and 16, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, when, when you give or when you pray or when, you're, when you fast, don't do it for the audience of the people. Don't stand on the corner praying. And he uses this interesting uh, language, obviously uh, culturally relevant to their day and time, but he's saying that to us also. When you, when you do these things, don't do it to, just to put on a show. Do it in such a way that you're doing it for an audience of one. You're doing it for God because of your love for God. And so therefore, your public life and your private life, there should not be any kind of disparity between the two. Uh, he goes on in verse 15, chapter 15, verses 7, 8. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to uh, kind of allude to each one of these, just talk about them very briefly. You can see these, these are part of your cross-references, and you can look these up on your own later as you work through the growing notes. In Matthew uh, 15, verses 7 through 8, this is what he says. You could probably, most of you have quoted this before, probably memorized this. He says, these people, they worship me with their lips. You guys, I guess you did. Some of you knew that. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far, far from me. These people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is what he's saying. Wow, they look really good. They go to church, they read their Bible, they pray. They drop money in the box, and yet their heart is a long ways from me. I mean, you, can, you could have even come here to church this morning for all the wrong reason. Just to look good, maybe you were forced to be here. So why are you here? I, I know you didn't come to be entertained because we don't do that here. I'm not much of an entertainer. And uh, even our band, I mean, they do a fabulous job. I think they're really, really talented. And yet it's not about entertainment because it's truly about an encounter with God. It's, it's truly an opportunity for you to encounter God. So if you came to, inter- to be entertained, eh, you're not going to get it here. But if you came to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, when was the last time you really encountered him? When was the last time that you just kind of took off the mask and you got serious with God? You were honest with him. No more pretense. That's what he's saying. Eliminate pretense. No more game playing. No more checking the church box, going through the motions. When you show up, you're here to know the living God, to encounter Him. That's what he's saying. Don't just, you know, hop to it because someone's watching. Open your heart. Connect with God. Because all of life is lived before the face of God. So you can do all the right things and you can even look good on the outside and yet, and yet have a heart that's a long ways from God. That's what he's saying there. And there's a few other verses here. I mean, 
He unleashes fury, Jesus that is, in chapter 23 of Matthew. I mean, he, he says, he calls the Pharisees snakes. And he says, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers. You guys are, you look good on the outside, but you're filled with dead men's bones. And then it's... Uh, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul is really concerned for the church in Corinth, and he says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, man, I am, I am so fearful, I'm afraid that somehow, just as, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your, your hearts, your mind, your thoughts would be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. What was he concerned with? That they would somehow just kind of go through the motions, check the church box. It wasn't truly an encounter with God. Even when they read their Bible or prayed or got together in their small group, it was just something they did, something they just added to their life. It was just part of their life rather than truly an opportunity to increase their capacity to experience the living God. If you want change in your life, you've got to, if you'll be real with God, he'll be real with you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Hebrews 11.6, that's the faith chapter. He says, whoever comes to God, so if you want to come face to face with the living God, through his word, through prayer, through worship, in your small group, all these different avenues, these spiritual disciplines that we practice, if you want to encounter him, whoever comes to God must believe that he exists, that all of life is before the face of God. He sees you right now. He knows all that's going on in your life. He loves you. Must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You will seek him and find him when you seek him with all of your heart. It tells us in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. Eliminate pretense. And I've always struggled with this a bit. Um, I think you struggle with it too. So I'll draw you into my company of, of being a failure at this. And there was a time certainly that uh, when I was working on the fire department and even as a pastor, people would almost look to me like, wow, he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. He's a great guy to, to work around. He's a, he's a hero. Wow. Right to the rescue. And then my wife would, say, yeah, but you don't have to live with them because she knew me. And so there was this disparity between my... And by the way, if there's a disparity between what you do in public and what you do in private, it just shows to you and to me that there's pretense going on. You've got pretense. If you're a greater hero to people outside of your home than those within your home, I mean, I want to be a hero to my wife and to my kids more so than anybody else. But if I'm not, it just shows that I've got some pretense going on in my life. That's all. And I need to uh, recognize that pretense. I'm, there's mask-wearing, game-playing. I'm more concerned about what people think about me than what, I, what God thinks about me because I live my whole life before the face of God. And so that's, that's what he talks about here. In fact, let me read to you some th- thoughts just from I thought was interesting. Uh, from John Ortberg. I'll, just, I'll do it quickly. This is from his book. You hear me quote from it off and on, especially when we deal with uh, relational issues. Uh, everybody's normal until you get to know them. That's a book. And in there, he talks about this whole idea of wearing masks. And then he, he kind of lists some of the masks. Maybe you can identify with this. And I mean, this is so subtle in our lives. We all do it. It's the default mode within us. Adam and Eve did it because immediately when they were in sin, what did they do? They sewed on fig leaves. We all wear fig leaves. 
We all project an image that we want others to see in our lives. That we want to, we want to show to them something that's probably inconsistent with what's really going on in our life. But he goes on and he says, hey, so let, let me ask you a personal question. What's your pretense? He calls it a veil here. What do you hide behind to keep from being known? Some people hide behind superficial conversation. If I can dominate the conversation, <laughs> it's all superficial. Then you're not going to ask me any hard questions. We won't get really close and we just kind of skim by. He goes on, he says, oftentimes even humor. If I crack a few jokes, you know, you'll, you'll laugh and we'll laugh and then we won't have to get to more serious things. He goes on and says, some people use their intelligence as a veil. Others use ignorance. Some veil themselves in busyness, in their work, in their vast uh, competence and success. Some people have high-tech veils with remote controls or mouse pads. Ironically, many people in the church veil themselves with spirituality. Another page over, he talks more about this. To live with an unveiled face or without pretense means that I make a covenant that I will try to never pretend to be more than I really am. This means I will, and he lists three things, I will give up trying to please everyone in my life. How many say that that's probably a struggle with you, trying to please everybody in your life? Boy, nothing will, will uh, put you on the loony farm faster, okay? Nothing will stress you out more than trying to please everybody. I mean, it's just, you weren't made to do that. You're not supposed to do that. But he says, you've got to give up trying to please everyone in my life. He said this also, pursue the courage to express what I truly value, enjoy, and love, even if I think the person I'm talking to will disagree or disapprove. (laughs) That's a hard one too. How many can relate to that one? Sometimes you just kind of like, oh yeah, I like it too. Woohoo. And really, you know, you're just trying to get along. And sometimes it's nice. It's a nice thing to say. But you're not being true to who you are. Here's the third one that's most important, I think. Acknowledge it openly when I get something wrong instead of giving in to the temptation to hide to hide it or manage it or put a positive spin on it. I mean, even the stuck points. If you can't come up with any stuck points, it's because you've got some major denial going on. Everybody here has stuck points. Everybody has some kind of issues going on. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'll never forget, my wife and I, we were part of this small group. It wasn't very small. It was quite a number. It was probably about 10 to 15 couples. So there was about 20, 25 of us. I remember couples going around the room sharing their issues and their problems. And, and there were, everyone there was struggling until we came across one couple. And this couple, they'd been married for 20 plus years. They said, we have never, ever, ever had any problems in our marriage relationship. I thought the people in that room were going to take them and throw them in the middle of the room and dogpile them. Like, what the heck? They were in denial. Someone was doing a lot of lying in that relationship. I mean, really, seriously. You are flat out out of touch with reality. And the Bible is very clear about that too. First John, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. <laughs> That's what I love about Desert Breeze. It's a place where you can, hey, you can take off the mask. I'm... I'm not okay, and you're not okay. And we desperately need the Savior. And that's why it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Him. It's about making much of Him and our hearts being drawn to Him. He goes on in here and talks about uh, just being open with our lives, but here's a statement you've heard me quote from him before. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. You can only be completely loved if you are completely known. And oftentimes we feel so isolated in large settings, even like this, is because we're just not taking off the mask 
the people are only getting as far as your mask. And until you take that down, can they get down to what's really going on in your life? And there can be that connection that can be unbelievably healing. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another, and you will be healed. James 5, 16. So we've got to eliminate pretense, but also we've got to motivate your heart. You've got to learn to motivate your heart. So when you get down to the heart of the issue, what is it that motivates you? Look at verse 12 again. He starts off, we started off this text by saying, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Anytime there's a therefore, you have to ask that question. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, he just talked about, and he gave us this amazing song of praise that we studied last week about the incarnation, atonement, exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that God has done for you and I. Let me just say, and basically he was just giving us the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to us. If the gospel message isn't the most amazing, most breathtaking message that you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. There is nothing, nothing more amazing than the gospel, than what Jesus Christ has done, who he is and what he's done for you and I. It is breathtaking. It will ravish your heart. You will never be the same. When it goes from concept to reality, deep within your heart. And see, that's what should ultimately motivate us. That's what he's saying. Therefore, because of this, because of all that Jesus is and all that he's accomplished, how do we know there's a God? He came to this planet Earth. He showed himself to us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he gives us fullness of life. He says, because of that, that is your motivation for life. And then he also says, therefore, and then in that same verse he says, with fear and trembling. Now, we spent a considerable amount of time this last summer in the book of Proverbs. You guys should know what fear is. It's not being afraid of God, but it's a life-altering, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty, glory, splendor of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the fear of God. It's that sense of, wow, I can't believe what he does and how much he loves me and what he's done for me. And so I want to respond. I want to love him in return. In fact, Proverbs uh, 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So the heart, the heart of the matter is the most important part of our, our relationship with God. And the heart has to do with our mind, will, emotion. It has to do with really what we treasure the most, what's most important to us. Matthew 6.21 says, Where your heart is, that is where your treasure is also. Where your, I'm sorry, I, I misquoted that. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So it's your treasure that captivates your heart. Whatever controls your heart controls your, your behavior. So your behavior actually comes out of your heart, and whatever you treasure in your heart is really ultimately is what controls our lives. Matthew twenty two thirty four through 38, he says, Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 1 John four nineteen it says we love him because why? He first loved us. So our love for him is, he takes the initiative, he reaches out to us, he ravishes our heart, and then we respond back to him with love. And then I, I put on your notes, your cross-references, Ephesians five twenty five through 28, and then 2 Corinthians 8 9. Let me explain that real quickly because these are two illustrations of what should motivate life change in our lives. This is ultimately what, what should change us. This is, as we, as we motivate our hearts, what does that mean? What does that look like? 
The Apostle Paul is dealing with men who is no big deal for them to have a couple concubines on the side. This is a culture that I got my wife and we, we make babies and so she's going to stay home and take care of them, but I'm going to go out and party and have a, have a couple girlfriends. Now it would have been very easy for him in the fifth chapter of Ephesians to say, hey guys, that's perverted, that's wrong, you guys are messed up, don't do that. He doesn't hammer them, he doesn't beat them up, so he doesn't use pride, you guys are better than this, or fear, God's going to get you. He doesn't use that kind of motivation. This is what he says to them. He says, guys, listen to me. Love your wives. Like how? As Christ loved you. The church. When that gets a hold of your heart, it will forever change the way that you relate to your wives. So he doesn't use fear and pride as motivation. He uses a love, the love of God deep in their heart. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are some pretty profound chapters in the Bible on the topic of, of finances and giving, the Apostle Paul, once again, is trying to motivate these people to give, and he doesn't uh, uh, motivate them through fear and pride, fear, uh, showing, him, showing them pictures of the Jerusalem kids who are in poverty, and they've got flies all over their face, and saying, see these poor kids, if you don't give, they're going to starve to death. And so he doesn't use fear, he doesn't use pride by saying, hey, come on, you guys are better than this. Come on, be, be people that will, you know, be beyond these other people who don't give. And, you know, he doesn't use that, but this is what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Now, out of the richness of who Jesus is for you, let that overflow your life. So we've got to eliminate the pretense, quit playing games, be real with God, he'll be real with us, and then let our hearts be ravished by his love. I've shared this in the past. You need to know it. I need to keep probably reminding you this, of this kind of annually. But there's a book by Jonathan Edwards, uh, 18th century, a great theologian, American theologian. He wrote the book, The Nature of True Virtue. And in this book, he made a distinction between common virtue and true virtue. He didn't disdain common virtue. Common virtue is just, um, you're motivated to be a virtuous person, a good person, to do nice, kind things. He says anytime when someone's doing something nice, typically it's out of common virtue, it's out of fear and pride. It's like, uh, and, and, and as parents we have to be careful, what are we using to motivate our kids? I will beat you into next week if you don't start doing this. You know, we use all these different motivations and that would be fear. That would be certainly fear motivation. It's got to move from fear to a, a deeper kind of motivation, more from an extrinsic to an intrinsic form of motivation. But he said common virtue is fear and pride motivated. Fear would be, what will people think? I better step up. I better uh, be nice. I better give regularly or, or God will get me. Or pride, look how great of a person I am. He didn't disdain that because if we didn't at least have that, this place would really be messed up. But he said that true virtue goes much deeper than that. Because if you're motivated by fear and pride, then something that comes along that is uh, that's a much deeper motivation in this category of fear and pride, something that you fear or more proud about will, will, will detour you. And that's why oftentimes, even in our stuck points, we don't last in bringing change to our lives because it's being motivated extrinsically. And when that extrinsic motivation is no longer there, there's nothing to hold us to the task or to that life change. When he says there's something much deeper, true virtue 
And he said that it is a heart, it is a heart that is that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So that whatever comes along, it can't ever change the direction of your life and your heart because as a, where your treasure is, if he's your treasure, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also and then that's where your thought, emotion, will will be also. Thought, will, emotion. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. See, there's a major difference between a moral restrained will versus a supernaturally transformed heart. And you've heard me say this. Let me say it again. You know, you want obedient kids, but they need to be just more than just obedient. They need to be obedient because of their love for God. Because that would be behavioral modification. I want my kids to obey. Well, that's behavioral modification, moral restrained will. As long as you keep the gun to their head, they're going to be obedient. But you need to have it come from something inside of them. A love for God. And of course, you can't give what you don't have. And so parents, we have to be those kind of people who have a, an amazing love for God so that our, our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior is following our heart that's been captured by this treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a guy send to me a... I received an email. And the guy said in capital letters about women submitting to their husbands... This is what he said. I don't care whether you want to, whether you like it, whether you feel like it, you submit to your husband because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. How would you respond to something like that? This is how I respond. This is one of my stuck points. You are full of crap. It's kind of a stuck point. I was a natural response to an elder religious brother. You know why that's wrong? That's behavioral modification. It's a moral restrained will, not a supernaturally transformed heart. And, and by the way, sometimes it's not a good thing to submit. Sometimes you don't submit to abuse. He's not talking. And see, sometimes you get this all messed up, and that's what this guy was basically alluding to. It was pretty jacked up. It was pretty messed up. This is behavioral modification. It has nothing to do with the gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This cracking the whip and this duty-oriented kind of following of Jesus have to. No, it's not have to. Why wouldn't you want to follow him? Aren't you in love with him? Is he the treasure of your life? I mean, that's, that's what I read. That's what I understand. Listen to what John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote. He wrote another hymn that puts it perfectly. Listen to the words from this hymn. He says, Our pleasure... And our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, wow, I want him. I want to follow him. John Newton's friend, the poet William Cowper, treats this idea in another hymn. This is what he says. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child in duty and a choice. See, here, let me say it again. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing 
Therefore, we give him our lives. We follow him. See, that's the Christian life. If you reverse that, you become an elder brother, you're religious. That's, that, that has nothing to do with the Christian life. It's a heart ravished by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Psalm 51. You guys familiar with this psalm? David's repentance. Of, I mean, think about this. King David committed adultery, murder, did all these things. And then he says something that's very profound. He says, against you, against you alone have I sinned. He understood that all sin was ultimately against God. He understood that his sin, though he sinned against the nation, against Bathsheba, and against her husband. But he also ultimately knew that he sinned against God first and foremost because he trampled on the wisdom and love of God to be able to fulfill these other sins, to do these other sins. But he says something in there. In this prayer of repentance, he says, Restore unto me the what? You guys remember? The joy of my salvation. David didn't lose the joy of his salvation because he sinned. He sinned because he had lost the joy of his salvation. Does that make sense? See, here's what happens. Sin holds out a promise. The reason why we chase after sin is because we think that we're going to be happier by pursuing sin. I've I've told you this many times before. We pursue sin because it holds out a promise, but the power of sin's promise is broken always by the power of God's promise and seeing the beauty of Him. And that's what he's saying. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Here's the next one. Activate your faith. So we eliminate pretense, motivate your heart, and so the motivation of your heart is this this beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you activate your faith. Verse 12, he says, work out your salvation. You notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. These people have salvation. If you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have salvation. Boy, do you have salvation. It's unbelievable what you have through Jesus Christ. Do you have any idea what you have in him? And now he's saying, because of this amazing wealth of heaven that is yours, work it out. Live in the reality of it. In fact, he even tells us how to do that. He says, God is working in you. Don't you know that God is working you in you to will? So he's, he's changed our desires. That's regeneration. And to act. He gives us the ability to live that out. Take a look at some of these cross-references here. Don't need to turn there. Let me just walk through them very quickly. In Mark 8, 14 through 21, Jesus is trying to help the disciples to activate their faith. He comes to them and he says something like this. He says, hey, you guys, I want you to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the unleavened bread of the Pharisees. And immediately the, the disciples are like, what the heck? What is he talking about here? And they go over there and start mumbling. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they're going, what the hell? Did we forget bread? Was it because we forgot bread? Oh, we don't have bread. Oh, and they start freaking out. Oh, we don't have bread. We should have bread. And he's like, oh, gee, how long do I have to be with these clowns? You know, and, and you get that idea that he's extremely frustrated. And I fit right in there with those clowns. And he's saying, guys, listen. I'm talking about something really serious and I'm talking about the false teaching of the Pharisees and you guys took it off and ran off with this whole idea of daily needs of bread. You guys, don't you remember how I provided for the multitudes two times? In fact, he talks about it. He tries to help them to connect the dots. He says, listen, remember when I broke the bread here? How many people we provided for? Oh, and then over here, I did that. So you guys are stressed out over daily essentials. I told you I'm going to take care of that. You've got a more serious issue at hand. You need to focus on the false teachers. 
He's trying to reorient them. And so often we do that. We get stressed out about life. And God's saying, hey, you're missing the big E on the eye chart. You're focused over here. I told you I was going to take care of that. So activate your faith. Believe that I'll take care of you. Now focus on the things that I want you to focus on. We so easily get distracted. And what we have to do in the midst of that, we have to activate our faith. We have to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What should I be thinking about right now? What should I be focused on? God, what do you want me to be about? It's really an interesting story. In Mark 9, 23 through 24, Peter, James, and John come off from the Mount of Transfiguration and the other disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't get it done. So Jesus comes over and tries to cast... He actually does cast the demon out of a, a young boy. But he asks the Father before he does that. He says, you know, do you have faith? And do you guys remember how the Father responded? Yes, I have. Yes, I believe. I believe. But help me in my unbelief. Oh. And I love that. Because oftentimes when we're in the midst of the battle and the difficulty, yes, I believe, but I have doubt too. Help me, God. Help me. And what he's teaching us is that sometimes activating your faith is just being willing to admit, I don't have faith right now. And looking to him and focusing upon him. Help me. In my unbelief, James, uh, Galatians 6, 7 through 9, it says, God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And then it talks about if you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life. And then he says something in verse 9. He says, do not grow weary in well-doing, because in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you are just flat out worn out. You're exhausted. Some of you are grieving. Some of you just, man, you've been just inundated with so many things. Listen, this is God's word for you this morning. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Activate your faith. Keep activating your faith. You're in the midst of a battle. Keep activating your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking to him. Because in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Don't grow weary. Do not grow weary. Listen to me. Do not grow weary. Some of you are growing weary with your kids. This is a... This can be a wearisome time of the year, this Christmas thing that's supposed to be good news of great joy, and it can be the most overwhelming and depressing. I've talked with a lot of people that's just, it's real troubling. Many people have lost relatives during this time of the year. It's a sad time of the year. Do not grow weary in well-doing. In due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Keep activating your faith. That's what he's telling us here. Keep reminding yourself of who Jesus is and what He's done for you. Live in the reality of that. Activate your faith. Matthew 17, 20 talks about mustard seed faith. So let me walk you through this whole idea of activating your faith. Faith is not a feeling or a force or a formula, but it's a fellowship. It's relationship with the living God. And it's not the size of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that matters most. Did you know that? I mean, if... If some, some knucklehead in our church decided to cut the leg out from under this stool up here, in all the faith in the world, I could say, I've got faith in that stool and I'm going to sit down. And I could sit down really hard. And if someone had cut the leg out from under it, it doesn't matter how much faith I have, I'm going back on my tail end. That thing's going to be kicked out from under me. But even if I had just very little faith, mustard seed faith, and I, I needed to sit on that, but nobody messed with it, and it was pretty stable. Even if I kind of sat lightly, that thing's going to hold me. See, it's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters most. And this is what you need to keep in mind. You know how you can grow? 
grow in your faith? A lot of times I've heard people preach, come on, just have faith. What, faith in faith? No, faith in God. The more you get to know Him, get to know Him, the more you get to know Him, the more your faith will grow. Because you're getting to know the object and His, his love, His wisdom, His sovereignty. You can trust Him. See, so, so if you want to grow in faith, faith comes by hearing, hearing what? The Word of God, Romans ten seventeen, And so as you read God's Word, this book is all about Him. And so as you get to know Him, you'll know that He is trustworthy. And so your faith will soar. It's not the size as much as the object of your faith, but the more you get to know the object of your faith, the more your faith will grow. Let me give you a quick illustration of how this works out in our life. Uh, Keller talks about it in his book here, Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about a young lady who was uh, just unbelievably beautiful. It was somewhat of a curse for her. Initially, she used it uh, as a form of manipulation with men, but then later on they used it against her. And then she found that she was uh, drawn to a cycle of men who abused her and beat her. And she was trying to get out of that cycle. That would certainly be a stuck point. He talks about how she got out of that stuck point, And she, this is a perfect illustration of what it means to activate your faith. One day Sally told me how she got her life back. She went to a counselor who rightly pointed out that she had been looking to men for her identity, for her salvation. Instead, the counselor proposed she should get a career and become financially independent as a way of building up her self-esteem. The woman agreed wholeheartedly that she needed to stand on her own two feet economically, but she resisted the advice about finding self-esteem. I was being advised to give up a common female idolatry and take on a common male idolatry, she said, but I didn't want to have my self-worth dependent on career success any more than on men. I wanted to be free. How did she do it? She came across Colossians 3 where St. Paul writes, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. She came to realize that neither men nor career nor anything else should be her life or identity. What mattered was not what men thought of her or career success, but what Christ had done for her and how he loved her. So when she saw a man saw a man was interested in her, she would silently say in her heart toward him, you may turn out to be a great guy and maybe even my husband, but you cannot, you cannot ever be my life. Only Christ is my life. And when she began to do this, she got her life back. This spiritual discipline gave her the ability to set boundaries and make good choices and eventually to love a man for himself and not simply to use men to bolster her self-image. So here's how it works. This is what it means to activate your faith. Is that no matter what you're facing, if you're facing trial, difficulty, tribulation, it's in the, mem- in the moment of the storm Activate your faith. Look to the one who walks through your day with you, who will never leave you or forsake you. 
Think about and meditate on those words. Listen to praise tapes until that goes from a concept to a reality deep within your heart to where you begin to walk out of that time alone with God with unbelievable courage and confidence to face whatever you're facing. If it's temptation, you've got to begin to stir up your appetite for God that would exceed your appetite for sin. It's that explosive power of a new affection. You want Him more than you want your sin. It takes time. It takes time. It takes time as you work through that and you battle that. And then you've got to evaluate your progress. He says, shine as lights in the world. He says, in other words, we should be living a life in such a way that it puts Christ on display. Now, here's some different ways that you can evaluate your progress. This is some of the ways that I've looked at. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says that you need to evaluate your life to see if you're in the faith. Am I living as one who really believes that God loves me? Am I living that out? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. That's a good checklist to go through. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Galatians 5.22-23 You guys familiar with that list? That's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. So here's my question for you. Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? If you're walking in vital union with Jesus Christ, it should be a natural overflow of your life. There's another list also there that you can look at and pray through. But here's, here's how I know that I'm really growing. And this is how you can tell. What's your preoccupation? What's your focus? If you're focused on doing, got to do more, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can do it, come on. Or is it on done, what he's done for you? What's, what's your preoccupation? What, what are you most focused on? Now, I've used this as an illustration before. Let me, let me walk you through it again. If I were to come up to you and ask you, are you a Christian? Typically, people that are really preoccupied with the doing are kind of defaulting toward religion. Religion is all about doing, spelled D-O. The gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. It's been done for us, and that should be the preoccupation. Now think about this. If you're preoccupied with what he's done for you, you will be stunned, you will be amazed, you will be in awe, and then out of that will be the flow of your life. But too often, because the default mode of our heart is religion, we're constantly thinking, oh, I need to do more, I need to read my Bible more, I need to pray more. No, that'll be a natural byproduct of being captivated by the beauty of what he's done for you, it will naturally flow from your life. So if I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you said, of course I am. And you became very defensive. That would be obviously the elder brother religious type found in Luke 15. Of course I am. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I put money in the box. What more do you want? Well, you can do all that and not be a believer. Or if you respond like the, el- like the younger brother in the prodigal son's story. Oh my goodness, I hope so. I'm not even worthy to be called his son. <laughs> Just kind of like, ah. Uh-huh. And, and, and that's that despair. So religious people typically either have pride or despair. When you understand the gospel, here's how your response should be. Are you a believer? Yeah. Can you believe it? Me, a believer. I'm a child of God. I'm a mess. And yet he loves me. He gave his life for me. But he's still working in my life. See, that's the, that's the appropriate response. That's someone who understands that I'm, I'm sinful, but I'm incredibly loved. It's not based on my performance. It's based on his. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Are you living in the reality of all that he's done for you? Here's another way that I, I look at my life. 
And so I keep coming back, I keep coming back, and I just saturate my mind. That's, that's the next point. But before we move to the next point, let me talk about this reaction recovery time. I start looking at my reaction recovery time. I mean, um, I still kind of struggle with it, but not near as bad as I used to. But how many, uh, after you've had interaction with someone or you've gone to a party and people say some things and they were unkind or whatever, and maybe you said a few things that weren't so kind, and then you walk away from that and you have these crazy brain debates like that go on forever. Show of hands. Don't you just love that? And so what I'm learning is that I don't have those brain debates as, as often and that there's, my reaction recovery time is actually shrinking. That I quit putting so much emphasis on what people think about me and I put more emphasis on what he says about me. And that if I said something that was wrong, I certainly apologize and I go and make that right. But if they said something that was wrong, it's either love that covers a multitude of sins or I go and talk to them about it. And I deal with it. But man, I don't blow up or have a meltdown because of it and have these brain debates that keep me up all hours of the night. I mean, that's just one of many. But when you see your reaction recovery time, there was a time when Nancy and I, we'd get, these, we'd get into these little, okay, we'd get into some pretty good ones. And it would take us, it would take us weeks to kind of recover from that. Now, we see them coming. And, I mean, we've been married for 34 years. We better be able to see them coming. But we see them coming, and, and most of the time we're able to respond. And if we do respond appropriately, immediately we're able to recover from that right then, right there. Oh, did I say something that was inappropriate? Please forgive me. Let's, let's walk through this. I didn't mean to say that. That's, that's a reaction recovery time. Shrinking. Evaluate your progress. But how do you do all this? You've got to saturate yourself spiritually. You've got to fill your heart up with the Word of God. Joshua 1.8 Oh, let, let me give you the verse here that I base that on. Verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life. And then Joshua 1, 8, one of the cross-references, he says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. You'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you'll be prosperous and successful. You guys are familiar with Psalm 1, talking about meditating on God's word, being like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. John eight thirty one and 32 says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Luke 6, 43 through 45, talk about filling our hearts up with the Word of God. Colossians three sixteen. let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is so saturating your life with God's Word, His promises, His commands, His insights, that you immediately think on spiritual things. You have that biblical worldview. It just becomes a part of your life. One more quote here. Jonathan Edwards, this is what he said, the great American theologian. This is from his book, Religious Affections. He says, Yet how insensitive and unmoved most people are about spiritual things. Here their love is cold, their desires are sluggish, and their gratitude is small. They can sit and hear about the infinite love of God in Christ Jesus. Christ agonizing death for sinners and salvation by His blood from the everlasting fires of hell to the inexpressible joys of heaven and be cold, unresponsive, and uninterested. Yet what else should move our emotions if not these truths? Could anything possibly be more important, more wonderful, more relevant? Can any Christian entertain the thought that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should not stir and excite human emotion? So what I do when I spend time with God, I work in such a way and study His Word to have an encounter with Him so that it would stir up greater passion within my heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would live our lives in such a way that it would attract people ultimately to Him. 
as we find deeper and deeper satisfaction in Him. Spiritual disciplines are really just um, things that we do to increase our capacity to experience more of God. And so, to get beyond my stuck points, I eliminate pretense, motivate my heart, activate my faith, evaluate my progress, saturate yourself spiritually, and then I've got to learn to imitate Godly models, I surround myself with people that I want to emulate and follow and I get good advice from. We're going to talk about that more next week. So you can fill in the blank and then bow your heads. Let's take a moment. We're going to pray. I'm going to show you a video and then our band's going to come up here and end with a song really that I think is a, a song of praise and, and repentance of, of God, allowing God to continue to work in our lives. Let's just take a moment before God. What are you struggling with? What are your stuck points? first thing you want to do is just confess that to God and maybe even to a few brothers or sisters around you in a small group. Maybe your first thing would be to get involved in a small group where you can begin to open up your life. God, I pray that we would learn how to eliminate the pretense in our life, the, the game playing, the mask wearing. We want to know you. God, you told us that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. God, we want our hearts to be motivated by your, your grace and your love. Let us see you more clearly. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you. And then, God, in the heat of the battle, may we learn how to activate our faith, to, be, to realize how much you love us and that you're with us. And, God, help us to look at our progress, that we would be able to evaluate our progress. But may we be preoccupied with what you've done for us and then out of that, our response. And so, God, may we saturate ourselves spiritually. And may we learn to emulate those godly models you've placed around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.